Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 200 from Bali, Indonesia. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with Paul Ducklin. I believe you're in London, England. Is that right? No, I'm in Sophos, big HQ in Oxford. So I'm coming to you from the uh, from the command center. Well, it's it it's uh, been a busy week, and I'm here for our sales and partner kickoff for the Asia Pacific region, and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast. But it's not been a particularly good week uh, for Americans when it comes to data theft incidents. Once again, in particular, this time I say Americans because the Internal Revenue Service has announced that a breach of over 100,000 taxpayers' records uh, were were compromised using a what's known as I guess a transcript system that the the IRS offers. The, the way the system worked was you could uh, supply your social security number, your date of birth, and some other personal piece of information. And with that, you could retrieve someone's full tax record. Obviously, this is sort of an identity thieves dream in a way, because while they've already got a look, you know, a pretty big chunk of your identity if they're able to do this, which is, you know, one way of looking at it. But the other way is most Americans, uh, for tax savings reasons, choose to include others on their return, perhaps their spouse, dependent children, other dependent family members. So having access to that information by having one person's ID now opens up potentially a whole slew of other people's IDs. And that's a pretty nasty situation. It certainly is, Chester. I mean, last week, it was the passport agency, wasn't it? You know, another organization where you have to provide a substantial amount of PII in order to get a passport. But my understanding is that this breach, in some ways, it's sort of mitigated by the fact that to get in, the guys already needed PII. But as you say, this could be expanded to cover loads of other people. And presumably, once they have all that information, anyone else who's on your tax return or you, uh, could suffer a fraudulent tax return, couldn't you? Yeah. Which, my understanding, that's a big, big problem in the US, which, A, means the tax office sends money to someone who doesn't deserve it, so it's absolutely sucking money out of the system. And B, you're left having effectively sent in a fraudulent tax return. So you're left carrying the baby of trying to sort out the fact that you didn't do something wrong. Yeah, there's that. And of course, you know, in the US, the social security number date of birth is pretty much the magical combination you need to acquire any sort of credit in someone's name, whether that be a, a loan for a new boat or a credit card or any of that kind of thing. And I, I guess what, what sprang to my mind is, okay, 100,000, I think that the number is somewhere around 104,000 is what the official reporting is showing. Uh, that suggests it was a pretty large breach that led to this breach. And is anybody connecting the dots? Like, is it in fact, the the dodgy stuff that was going on at the passport office that then led to that information being sold, shared, used, whatever, stolen, and then is now being used in this tax scam. I mean, where does someone get 100,000 plus Americans, social security numbers, dates of births, income amounts, whatever, you know, was, was required to use this system? There should be a way for law enforcement, hopefully, to start piecing together these these kind of chain crimes, right? Like first you steal this information, then you breach the IRS system using that information. Then with that information, you you know get a thousand cell phones in your name or a boat loan or whatever it is that you're using those identities for. Let's hope so. I mean, the credit card companies are quite good at that these days, aren't they? I mean, uh, Target and Home Depot breaches, weren't those noticed because the credit card companies realized that the pattern of fraud was skewed towards particular merchants. 
Yeah, it's actually in the industry. It's known as CPP. They 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 look for a common point of purchase when they start seeing fraudulent transactions on credit cards, and then based on those common uh, points of purchase, they can kind of start painting a picture of where it's very likely something occurred, whether that's a a region, whether it's a particular retail chain, etc. I you know if you are notified by the IRS, my assumption is that the victims will be getting letters in the mail. the The IRS will not contact you via email or telephone. <laughs> yes, do not. Click here to rectify your taxation matters, whatever you do. Exactly. and uh, But if you do receive one of those letters, my advice would be to contact the three major credit bureaus in the United States. Ask them to put a freeze on your credit, and uh, that will put in a system where you're notified if there's any queries against your, your credit record so you can approve those if there's something that you're actually legitimately doing, but at least have a, a heads up that somebody's trying to monkey with your, your information. Now, our next story is uh, related to some new ransomware. I mean, we've seen ransomware that's uh, pretended to be the police from different places. I even saw one once that pretended to be the Vancouver Transit Authority police, which is a bit of an odd one. This one, though, seems to be impersonating Breaking Bad. Now, I, I wouldn't know really what that is, unfortunately. I, I quite like television, which apparently is unusual these days. Uh, most people seem to, I guess, do everything on the Internet. But, but I haven't been following the Breaking Bad thing. But how, how does Breaking Bad tie into ransomware? I'm not a TV guy either, but Breaking Bad was a uh, sort of was a cult TV show that was about apparently it sounds like a strange basis for a story. It was about a high school chemistry teacher who needed money and uh, turned into a meth cook and uh, thus became got into organized crime. And there's a restaurant chain, a fast food chain in the TV show called Los Polos Hermanos, the chicken bros, I suppose. And uh, That's the logo that the crooks are using here. In the past, ransomware, we had crooks pretending to be cops. Now we have real crooks pretending to be fake crooks. Uh, Quite intriguing. And this, the the first samples that we're aware of of this actually played out in Oz. So you could pay $450. The price has gone up a little bit. As we've said before, typically used to be about $300 last year. And if you don't pay within the reasonable time, it also has that increasingly common two-tier pricing structure. You get a special discount if you pay early, or rather, you pay more, $1,000, if you decide to try and solve the problem yourself. Yeah, now, my understanding is, fortunately, the the crooks tripped up a little bit in some of the uh, versions of this and the way that they implemented the crypto. And, you know, a lesson to the good guys again don't knit your own crypto. You're only going to embarrass yourself. And fortunately, this time the crooks did. Doing it yourself is almost always a bad idea, whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, if you truly want to lock up someone's files. So there may be a chance of recovering your data if you've been hit with this. Is that correct? That is correct, Chester. Uh, Well, at least for the version of the malware that I looked at personally, uh, you could, with a little bit of PowerShell scripting, get your data back if you actually had a copy of the malware. Of course, Because this is malware written in PowerShell, it essentially spreads in source code form. So it's very, very easy for somebody to take the code and modify it. So do not rely on the fact that several times recently when we've spoken about ransomware, the crooks have not been as smart as the crypto locker guys. That would be a bad way to plan your ransomware protection, Uh, you know, backup and regular updates to your antivirus and software patching. They're all still your friend. Well, and not to mention network protection as well, right? I mean, one of the more effective things we've seen for those times when malware somehow sneaks in, whether that's on a thumb drive or where you were on a network somewhere else and brought a device into the network from from another location or whatever, 
most of these in order to uber protect the crypto are 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 retrieving the public keys to do the encryption from the criminals. So you also have a chance with your network protection to block that, even if the malware manages to somehow sneak into uh, into your devices. So, you know, there, there's multiple t- chances to stop this stuff, but you do have to be really diligent. The reason that works is that in many cases, the ransomware doesn't begin encrypting until it's been able to get the key. Of course, you can't rely on that. The ransomware could encrypt first and then get the key and encrypt the key it just used. But even so, if you then if you can block the connection, it means it has to rely on a locally generated key. So you do have a fighting chance of recovering it. So you're right. The crypto guys are relying on using the cloud so they can keep the keys secure and only ever have them in the back end. So if you prevent that connection in the first place, it doesn't solve the ransomware problem. But as you say, it's another line of defense very much worth doing. Well, yeah, and, and we all know, I mean, the bottom line is none of the technologies we use are foolproof. So by having more layers it protects us from really clever malware, but it also protects us from ourselves when we make a mistake and click a link or open an attachment sometimes. So the more layers, the better, I think. And, they're, they're, and, and what I'm really liking that I'm seeing these days with the combination of cloud technologies and the ridiculous power of an average Intel CPU in every device I own, uh, or I shouldn't say every device, not my mobile, but you know that type of thing, is we don't know, it doesn't get in the way anymore, right? It's not like there's a speed problem for encryption or a speed problem for antivirus or a speed problem for web filtering. Everything is so darn fast, there's no reason not to have the layers. So let's just have them. I don't think you could actually measure a statistically significant difference to your working life these days. Which which kind of leads into our next story very neatly. Uh, thank you for that, Doc. I mean, the 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 logjam vulnerability has been the latest branded bug that's made the headlines over the past week. And while I have some distaste for this, I, I think it sure beats the heck out of calling it to the CVE twenty fifteen XXXX vulnerability. So why not give them a name? I guess if we're going to talk about them, because crypto is so lightweight these days. Should we really still be supporting export ciphers and 512-bit keys and all of this? And I, I think the answer is a pretty resounding no if you look at the research that's been presented on what the latest risks are to using TLS in the wrong way. Uh, just to explain quickly, Logjam gets its name because it's a way of solving what's called the discrete logarithm problem, uh, which if you can do that, basically you can crack Diffie-Hellman-Merkel key exchange Uh, But to solve the discrete logarithm problem is meant to be computationally so expensive that you'll never finish it in a reasonable time, provided you have big enough prime numbers that you use in the DHM cipher. And these export ciphers that many operating systems and software were still supporting were deliberately designed to be just about crackable by organizations like the NSA back in the 1990s. Turns out, surprise, surprise, 20 years down the line, with a small botnet, you can crack it yourself in a week. Or with access to a bunch of PlayStations, or with access to a modestly sized corporate network and some spare CPU cores. What what about government-mandated spyware? Now, I, I, I thought I had misread the headline when I saw it on Naked Security, because I'm like, oh, this has to be a typo. We couldn't possibly really be in a situation where a government would try to tell us that we have to spy on one another. But apparently that's what's happening in South Korea. I mean, what kind of comedy of errors leads to this as being a good idea? Article 37-8, according to the translation we published on Naked Security, methods and procedures for providing means to block media products harmful to juveniles, etc. 
you know, let's think of the children again. You know, we've had it in many other countries with, thing, with things like web filtering. My understanding in this case, in South Korea, they figured, hey, if you don't let the kids do it on the broadband connection at home, then they'll just do it on their mobile phones. So let's protect their mobile phones as well. So I suppose there's a kind of good motivation. It's just ironic that this news has come out, what, a week after the alleged M-SPY data breach that we spoke about just last week, where a company that sells commercial spyware, exactly the sort of stuff you imagine that the South Koreans will be wanting you to protect your children with so you can keep tabs on them, the data dumped so you're not only able to find out who bought the software, but actually victimize the victims a second time by seeing what had been spied upon as well as who had done it. Um, so, yeah, it just seems as though it's something that could only end in real, real trouble and actually potentially hurt the very people that it's supposed to protect. I, I find most of these censorship initiatives to be against my personal beliefs. I don't believe that any of this stuff should be enforced. But but even looking at it and saying, if you agree with the idea that, that the content for children should be controlled, that you would think you could do a better bad idea than this one. Rather than installing spyware, maybe you could do like the UK does and just filter the network connection. Ask the cellular providers if it's an underage person with this mobile device. Don't allow them to go to the blacklisted places because spyware is not going to really do any better job of the filtering than a network filter would, except it doesn't require anything to be installed on the device, which at least excludes the opportunity for additional vulnerabilities, data to be stolen, etc. Now, I mentioned at the top of the podcast that I'm here in Bali, Indonesia, and I really wanted to uh, just thank all of the SOFOS partners that uh, were able to attend our events in Las Vegas, in Rome, and uh, here in Bali, because uh, many of you have come up and, and mentioned the chat chat. We appreciate you listening and, and your feedback and your support. And more than that, we really appreciate uh, all, all the people that help us make all this stuff happen. And we don't really talk about our products here on the podcast and that kind of thing. And the reason we don't is that we have all of your support to be out there helping us get the message out about our products and how hard we work to keep our customers and your customers secure. So thanks to all of you who uh, joined us and and if you weren't able to join us this year, we hope you're able to join us next year. And uh, I'll be seeing you soon, won't I, Doug? Yes, we haven't met up for a while. It's going to be fun. For those of you who will be in London next week, that's the first week of June, Tuesday to Thursday. If you'd like to come and see us, InfoSec Europe is the event that Chester and I are both going to be in London for. It takes place at Olympia in London, and you can get a free day pass uh, from Sophos.com. So if you just go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com, put InfoSec in the search bar and you can get a pass on us. Come to the stand, meet me and Chester and our, many of our other colleagues. And we're going to be doing great presentations, which I'd say are, they're sort of more like the chat chat and absolutely not like sales pitches, aren't they? Uh, where we're talking about cryptography, man in the middle attacks, Linux malware, mobile security, all that sort of stuff in a in a more sort of academic style conference style fashion in uh, some rapid fire presentations on the stand we'd love to have you and on that note i'm going to conclude software security chat chat number 200 for the 28th of may 2015 as always for the latest security news please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com all of our podcasts are available via rss on itunes on the TuneIn app or over at soundcloud.com slash and until next week stay secure